right, good morning, everybody. We'll go ahead and get started here today. We do have uh, our prayer request list today because Miss Laura's returned. Uh, so in her absence, I dropped the ball, but she's back and she has uh, our prayer request list for us. A couple on here I want to mention specifically, um, Ryan Sperry's prayer request for Amber Love. She lives in Troy, Missouri, is battling breast cancer. So please be in prayer for that. And then once again, for our Missions Jubilee, that will be starting uh, and that uh, the Lord will speak. On that note, next Sunday morning, we will have a missionary speaking in here in this class for us. So please be in your place, excited about always getting to hear from the missions, uh, missionaries in the mission field. So that we'll have a special speaker. I'm not sure which missionary it will be yet, but they'll have a special speaker next Sunday morning in this class uh, next week. So let's open up a word of prayer and then we'll begin here today. All right, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness. Lord, we thank you for your love, your mercy, Lord, giving us another day. Thank you for the beautiful sunshine and the weather. We thank you for that. We do pray now that you would be with us during this class, Lord, you let your word speak to our hearts, Lord, that we would, Lord, find a little, a little time this morning just to be arrested by what your word has to say and the impact it can have upon our life. We do pray for the service to come, uh, be with our missions jubilee as we enter into it this week, that you would bless it and you'd speak to our hearts through it in Christ and we pray, amen. Well, this morning we'll continue our study on the, uh, the life of Christ and specifically each day of his public ministry. Uh, we have gotten up to day number five. Uh, last week, if you recall, we looked at the, the first miracle that Jesus performed, turning the water into wine. This morning, we'll look at day six. Now, day six is one of those big days, and so I already know we're not going to get all the way through it, uh, because day six, uh, is the, it's a day of Passover, we'll read about it in a moment, where Jesus begins the cleansing of the temple, but then that rolls into his meeting with Nicodemus that same, that same evening. Now, this is one of those points of disagreement where some people divide this into two separate days. But based upon a plain reading of the Word of God, I, I think that it makes sense that that morning uh, Jesus goes into the, uh, the temple. He drives out the, uh, the money changers and the people that are making merchandise of God's house. And then that evening, Nicodemus comes to him to speak to him privately. So... We have a, a significant portion of scripture we're going to read this morning, and I hope that, that uh, this morning you would, uh, I know it's very, it's very easy, I've been in your, your shoes, I've been in your spot, and somebody reads, you know, close to 50 verses, and you can kind of tune out. Your mind can begin to wander. Uh, I know, I've been there, okay? Uh, I would ask us to do our best as we read through this this morning, um, that, uh, that we try and let the words of God speak to our hearts, do our best to put ourselves in this, uh, in this story, and then, uh, and then we'll go from there. So we'll begin reading in chapter number 2. If you recall, uh, verse number 11 of chapter number 2, this beginning of miracles did Jesus in Canaan of Galilee and manifested forth his glory, and his disciples believed upon him. That's where we left off last week. That was day number 5. Today we're coming into day number 6, and the Bible says, and after this he went down to Capernaum. I'm sorry, John chapter 2. Sorry about that. John chapter 2. Uh, verse, uh, verse number 11 is kind of wrapping up the, uh, the miracle of turning the water into wine. And then verse number 12, after this, he went down to Capernaum, he and, his, he and his mothers and his brethren and his disciples, and they continued there not many days. I don't know how many days he was there. The Bible doesn't really give us any detail on what they were doing during that time. Uh, so we're not going to count that as one of those days of public ministry. The next verse begins day number six that we'll be looking at today. And the Jews' Passover was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem and found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changers of money sitting. 
And when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overthrew the tables. And he said unto them that sold doves, Take these things hence, make not my father's house an house of merchandise. And his disciples remembered that it is written, The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. Then answered the Jews and said unto him, What signs showest thou unto us, seeing that that thou doest these things? Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will rise up. Then said the Jews, I will rise it up. Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in building, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? But he spake of the temple of his body. When therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this unto them, and they believed the scriptures and the word, which Jesus had said. Now when he was uh, in Jerusalem at the Passover and the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men and needed not that any should testify of man for he knew what was in man. Then going into chapter number three, same day, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter into the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I say unto thee, ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh, and whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can these things be? And Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou a master of Israel, and knowest not these things? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, we speak, that, uh, we speak that we do know, and testify that we have seen, and ye receive not our witness. For if I have told you earthly things, and ye believe not, how shall ye believe if I tell you heavenly things? And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man, which is in heaven. And, that, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent his Son not to the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation. That light is come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For every one that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that do, uh, doth trust, but he that doeth trust cometh into the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, and that we are wrought in God. And so, uh, this is obviously a very familiar portion of Scripture, John chapter three. Uh, I think probably if you were to ask our pastor, he probably preaches out of this text more than any other portion of Scripture, at least since I've been a member here at Bible Baptist Church. So I already know we're not going to be able to get through everything today. There's a lot going on in this, in this day. This is a very busy day for Jesus. Uh, so 
Uh, we, will, we will certainly touch on the, the interaction with Nicodemus, but this morning I'd like to spend a little more time talking about Jesus cleansing the temple. Because maybe that's a, that's, a part of, that's a part of Jesus' ministry that we don't spend enough time looking at or considering. So that's where we'll spend maybe the better part of our day, and then we'll make sure that we end on Nicodemus here in chapter number 3. So in John chapter number 2, uh, Jesus has, has come into um, Jerusalem. This is not the first time he had come to Jerusalem. If you recall, we already have uh, scripture that tells us that when he was 12 years old, that his family came to Jerusalem um, and that he was left behind. So we know this was not his first time. As, a, as a, a Jew, he would have gone to the Jerusalem every time there was a Passover, as long as he was not hindered providentially. They were to go to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. So he had been, uh, you know, 30 times probably, he had gone to Jerusalem uh, to, to observe the Passover. And nothing was out of the ordinary. Nothing was happening this time that had not happened before. This was a common thing that whenever they would come to Jerusalem, people from all around, so you've got to imagine Jews from all around the known world, not just people around the vicinity, but for, from all, all, the, all, the, all the, you know, the, 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 uh, the nation of Greece at that time, the people were coming from, or Rome, people were coming from all over to come to Jerusalem. And so if you think about it, um, you know, if you're coming to Jerusalem at the Passover, the point is there to offer a sacrifice. That's what they were doing when they came to Jerusalem on the Passover. And so they were to present a sacrifice they would give to the priest on the behalf of them and their family. If you recall the story in the Old Testament, in the book, in the book of e, uh, Exodus, they would sacrifice the lamb and they would apply the blood on the, on the doorpost and the, and the angel of death came over and passed over those people that had the blood applied. So you had to sacrifice a lamb for your family. Every family had to have a lamb. And so out of convenience, uh, we're, this is kind of how it began based upon the study that I did. Out of convenience, people would not bring a lamb from home. When you're traveling, you know, even if it was, you know, 40 miles, that was a lengthy journey for you to take you and your family and this spare animal that you have to bring as a sacrifice. So out of convenience, people would go to Jerusalem and they would acquire their sacrifice there. And that's the way it began, as a convenience kind of a thing. And there was nothing wrong about there. There's nothing immoral. There's nothing in the law of God that says they couldn't do that. Uh, but it was just a convenience thing. But over time, uh, the, uh, the people there in Jerusalem realized, hey, this is a great money-making opportunity here. Yeah. These people are coming from all around the world, and they're coming to get their sacrifices. So this is actually a time for us to make some money. And not only that, the, uh, the priests were the ones that were selling these animals. And, and what would happen is you would bring your lamb. Let's just say, let's just say you're like, no, I, I had this lamb. I've raised it from, a, uh, from the time it was born. And I want to bring this lamb from my home to Jerusalem. Even if it's 40 miles or 90 miles or 100 miles, I'm bringing my own sacrifice with me. Well, you come into the temple, you bring it to the priest, and they'd find some reason why that sacrifice was not acceptable. Yeah. They'd say, oh, no, no, we can't use this one. You've got to buy one of ours. Yeah. That's what they would do. And so people would come with their own sacrifice. It was perfectly good for a sacrifice. But the priest, realizing I'm not going to make money off this guy, would tell them your sacrifice is not good. And, oh, by the way, because you're from Rome or you're from, you know, Athens or you're from some other place, we can't take your money here either because your money has the image of a man on it. And we can't have a graven image in the temple. So you've got to go exchange your money for, for, for our money and then come back and you can buy the sacrifice. So not only were they making money on selling the animal, they had, a, they had a conversion that they would do, and they would take the, you know, the, the Roman coin and turn it into the coin that they would use for, uh, there in their, in their sacrifice in the temple. And they would have an exchange rate. And in some of, the, some of the books that I read, it was as high as 10% exchange rate whenever they would trade in their foreign currency to get currency that could be used in the temple. So whenever Jesus comes in, 
Uh, all this had been going on, but Jesus, when he sees the Bible, says that if you can imagine, um, and this is going on, this is going on in the, in, inside the temple walls. This was, this was on the outskirts of Jerusalem. They literally are setting up a flea market inside the temple, inside what's called the court of the Gentiles. Now, what was the point of the court of the Gentiles? The point of that was whenever God made that provision for Gentiles was so Gentiles could come close and they could learn more about this God, uh, of the God of the Jews, the God of the Hebrews, and hopefully eventually convert those people into following the one true God. That was the point of the court of the Gentiles. Can I tell you, it's, it's pretty hard if you, walked into the, if you walked into the court of the Gentiles and it's a complete flea market to have anybody thinking about God, to have any time to talk to someone about the word of God, to have any time to maybe disciple someone or show them the truth of God's word. This, that's not what was going on. These people had used this space and they had turned it into this flea market where they were selling animals and they were exchanging money, but it was all because they were desiring to make merchandise of God's house, as Jesus said. We don't know for sure, but probably close to half a million people were in Jerusalem at this time. When they're coming from all around the, the world at that time to, to offer sacrifices, close to probably half a million people. And this sacrifice was to fulfill the law of the Passover. And what had happened over time is the worship of God in the, and had been taken over by materially minded men. Men whose focus was on worldly things. On, on, making, on making money, or, or maybe not even making money, but just having authority over men. And this was the motivation of these, of these priests that were, that were offering up or selling these sacrifices and exchanging currency for people that were coming. The goal here was to enrich themselves. And this kind of worship sickens God. Let's turn over to the book of Isaiah, chapter number 1, and you'll see where God speaks about how he feels about uh, this, this behavior that was going on. Now, certainly Isaiah took place centuries before this moment that we're reading about in John chapter number 1. And even so much that the, you know, between Isaiah and Jesus, the Jews go into captivity into Babylon, and, they, and then they're freed from Babylon, they come back and they rebuild. This is a new temple that's being built. This is not the same temple that they had in Isaiah. But let's see what the Bible says here in Isaiah, and we'll begin reading in verse number 11 of chapter number 1. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me, saith the Lord? I am full of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts, and I delight not in the blood of bullocks or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who hath required this at your hand to tread my courts? Bring no more vain oblations. Incense is an abomination unto me. The new moons and Sabbaths and the calling of assemblies I cannot, uh, I cannot away with. It is iniquity, even the solemn meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hateth. They are a trouble unto me. I am weary to bear, to bear them. And when ye spread forth your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Yea, when ye make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Wash you, make ye clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before mine eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do well. Seek judgment. Relieve the oppressed. Judge the fatherless. Plead for the widow. Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. So, G, so God already in the Old Testament was saying, listen, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not as, I'm not as uh, focused on the, the act of your sacrifice as I am on the heart whenever you offer the sacrifice to me. I mean, the people, they were obeying the letter of the law, but they were disobeying the spirit of the law. 
They weren't coming to the temple to give glory and honor and worship God. They were coming there to make money. They were coming there to, to, to exchange currency. They were coming there because that was their job. And it had become familiar to them. And this is the way that they had been behaving for who knows how many years they have been behaving this way. And if we're not careful, even in our modern times, the things that become familiar to us, we call them legitimate. Just because something's familiar doesn't mean that it's right. Just because it's the way it's always been done doesn't mean it's the right thing to do. And Jesus walks into the temple and he says, I don't care if you've been doing this for a hundred years or a thousand years. This is not what God commanded us to do. And so Jesus cleanses the temple. What a reminder to us as the church that we should not get so much in a routine that we don't every once in a while take a moment and ask ourselves, is this being done according to the word of God? And is our spirit in accordance with the word of God? That's, that's the critical thing for us as a church. That we're not just doing things out of routine or religion or because that's the way that my dad did it or that's the way that my grandfather did it. But that it's because of the way that God wants it done. And if it means that we have to drive out the money changers from time to time, that's what needs to be done. And so Jesus comes into the temple and in John chapter 2 and verses 14 and through 16 it says... And he found in the temple those that had sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changes of money sitting. And when he had made a, core, a scourge of small cords, and if you can imagine, think about this as like a, this livestock market with all these different animals. Certainly there's all kind of cordage laying around from people where they had their animals tied up or, or, or the, even, even the, uh, the, the cages have the doves or, or tied up. There's, there's cords all over the place. And it says when he had made a, a, a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen, and poured out the changers' money, and overthrew the tables, and said unto them that sold doves, Take these things hence, make not my father's house an house of merchandise. So Jesus, I, I, we, uh, I don't think that we categorize this, at least I have not seen uh, uh, from, from the list that I've seen of all the miracles of Jesus. I've never seen anyone record the cleansing of the temple as a miracle, but it was a miracle. There was probably, they say probably, about a, if there was a half a million people in Jerusalem at that time, there's probably 125,000 to a half a million animals that had to be sacrificed during that time. This was not like a couple little animals here and there. This was a, 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 a bustling market. This was people coming and going and people yelling out their exchange rates for their currency and there were people trying to offer their, 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 their livestock as sacrifices. And the Bible says, if you read it, he drove them all out. One man with a little bit of rope who has no authority. He wasn't the high priest. He was just some random guy. I mean, uh, from the appearance of all these people, just some random guy comes in with a little scourge of rope and he drives out all the money changers, all the people selling livestock and all the animals out of this court. That is a miracle. Try and go to a stadium with just 50,000 people and try and drive everybody out by yourself. You're not going to be very successful. Something supernatural happened in this moment. Jesus drove these money changers. He drove these people that were selling the sacrifices out. And the Bible doesn't record one person getting injured. The Bible doesn't record one person dying. I mean, you hear it from time to time. Every few years you hear about some rock concert where there's a stampede of people trying to get in or out. And there'll be dozens of people that will die from the stampede, the crush of people, or people just trying to get close to the stage. 
This was that kind of environment. No one got injured. No one died. And not only that, look at verse number 16. I think this is interesting. And, t- and he said unto them that sold doves, take these things hence, make not my father's in a house of merchandise. So even as Jesus is driving out the money changers and the people selling livestock, he didn't just open up the cages and let the doves go. That's not what he did. He told the people, hey, get these out of here. These don't belong here. Even in that moment when he was cleansing the temple, he still had respect of people's property. So Jesus comes into the temple. A miracle takes place. As great as turning water into wine, this is a miracle. The size of the markets can't even harder for us to imagine. The, there's no loss of property. And it was all orchestrated by a single man with a little bit of rope. Unbelievable. Yes, sir. But the power of God obviously is working in this moment and drives everyone out of the temple. I think it's important for us to take a moment and consider this in chapter 2 that we, we, dis- we discussed last week, this first of miracles of turning the water into wine. And that's, and that's the Jesus that we all love. That's the Jesus that we hear about in popular culture. That Jesus is just love, love, love. It's all good. Live however you want. It's just a big party. Jesus turned the water to wine. We're having a celebration. This is the common pop culture. When, you, when people talk about Jesus, that's the Jesus they're talking about. But it would be foolish of us not, con- not to consider not just the Jesus of the wine, but also the Jesus of the whip. You can't separate the two. Now, listen, you can go to the extreme on the other side as well. I have, I have, uh, I've been in churches where you don't hear much about the Jesus of the wine. You only hear about the Jesus of the whip. I've been in those kind of churches where it becomes very legalistic. It, comes, it becomes very, you know, it's a very, um, it can even, even kind of take on a kind of a cult, a cult kind of a environment. In independent Baptist churches, I've been in those kind of places. And I would even tell you in my own heart, if, if, if I was going to try and grade myself, and I'm not sure how maybe self-aware I am, but if I was going to try and grade myself on what side of the coin I would fall on, the Jesus of the wine or the Jesus of the whip, I'm probably more on the conservative side. I'm probably more on the, I'm probably less gracious than maybe, than I, I probably don't uh, express Jesus as gracious as I need to sometimes. And so if you were to ask me personally, I'm probably more on the conservative side. But, but the point is, you can't take one without the other. You can't have the Jesus that's just all love and good and just give me good things and turn my water into wine and give me things and not have the Jesus that cleanses the temple. You know, the first miracle, he did a conversion, didn't he? He converted water into wine. And this is an important lesson for us as Christians. Jesus cleanses what he converts. You see this miracle of Jesus converting the water into wine. And the next miracle that we see is Jesus cleansing the temple. As Christians, Jesus is going to cleanse us. If you're, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're, if, you're, if, you're, if you're endeavoring to live the life that Christ has called you to live, it will, it will result in some cleansing. Jesus is going to come in from time to time and say, this isn't right. I don't care how long you've been doing it or how familiar it might seem or how everyone else in your church does it. Just because that's the case, that doesn't mean that it's right. And Jesus will cleanse what he converts We love the Jesus who turns water into wine, but you can't separate him from the Jesus who cleanses the temple. 
And that's what he was doing. He was saying, this is not right. We're to be coming here to worship God. That should be our focus. We shouldn't have to be fighting through a, a flea market of animals to get to the temple. You shouldn't be making merchandise of God's house. You shouldn't be here trying to sell things to enrich yourselves or get authority over men. These are all evil deeds and practices that make God sick. You can read more about it in Hosea and Amos where he speaks specifically about the sacrifices that are polluted. And this is what was causing the pollution. These people were not, uh, they were not, fought, they, they, they could say, yes, I'm, I'm right according to the letter of the law, but their, their heart was far from him. This is what God said to the, the people in the Old Testament. And the more I read the New Testament, and it's specifically the life of Christ in the Gospels, the more I see his, well, the way the Bible calls it here is his zeal, his jealousy. Jesus, in verse number 17, was motivated, it says, and the verse number says, and, he, and his disciples remember that it is written, the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. Now, this is a prophecy out of the book of Psalms, I believe, chapter 69. It's a prophetic psalm. It is talking about the, uh, the, the Messiah that's coming, and it says the zeal of his house has eaten him up. And this is what motivated Jesus. What does that mean, the zeal of his house hath eaten him up? That, that word zeal there, it means, if you were to look it up in the Greek, it means heat, to have heat, extreme heat, or to have jealousy. So maybe, you know, have you ever gotten, you know, so upset that your face turns red? Right. Matter of fact, that word, the, the word their zeal, the root word from it is actually comes from the word where uh, they would um, either the, the uh, either the boiling point of water. The boiling point of water was the word that came from this word zeal or whenever you would begin to see really hot metal turn orange and red. Whenever you see that, that either the water begin to boil or the metal begin to get hot, there was this word and that's where the word zeal comes from. It means to be hot. It means to be it means to be jealous. It means to be angry. Oh, Jesus got angry? Yes, Jesus got angry. Amen. Oh, I thought it was a sin to be angry. No, it's not a sin to be angry. Now, the Bible, does, the Bible does say, don't let the sun go down upon your wrath. You shouldn't carry anger over from one day to the next. You should deal with it that day. But there's, it's not sinful to be angry. It should make us angry from time to time as Christians. Whenever we see people profane the name of God, profane the name of Jesus, Whenever we see people on TV that call themselves Christians, these televangelists that lead people astray, lead them into hell, that should make us angry. That should cause us to have a little zeal for God's house. That should cause a little emotion for us. We, that we shouldn't, uh, listen, I mean, it, it, I, I'm, not, I'm not saying that it should get to a point where we're taking up arms and fighting physically, but it also shouldn't be nothing to us either. It shouldn't be not, we shouldn't be nonchalant towards those things. The Bible says that the zeal of the Lord, the anger, the jealousy, that boiling point, that moment whenever the metal begins to turn orange and red because it's so hot, that's what motivated Jesus to cleanse that temple. Now, he didn't act rashly. The Bible says he took the time to make a cord. He, he didn't do this unpremeditated is what I'm saying. He knew exactly what he was doing, but he didn't do it in a rash, spur-of-the-moment decision. I wonder if maybe for years he'd been coming to this temple and every time he came, maybe the anger began to build a little more and a little more and a little more. Now, why was this the moment whenever he took action? Well, because he had begun his public ministry. Prior to that, he was, he was under the, you know, the authority of his father whenever he was a child and then he was supporting his family as a, as a young adult. And now he'd come into his public ministry and he's saying, now that I am in my ministry, this is not right. I will not allow it. And he drove the people 
out of the temple. Can I tell you this morning, God is jealous over you? Just as much as he was jealous when Jesus walked into that court and he saw people that were distracted by all the things of the world, can I tell you that God is jealous over you today? He wants your attention. He wants your devotion. He wants your worship. He doesn't want any idols in your life. And this morning, can I tell you, he's worthy of it. He's worthy of our devotion. He's worthy of our attention. He's worthy of our worship. The creator of all the universe, the reason why you're living right now, the reason why anything ever good that's happened to you has happened is because of God, and he's worthy of that. God is jealous over you. And yet, how many of us, myself included, do we find ourselves distracted with the things of the world? The entertainments of the world. God is jealous. And he's worthy of our worship. And and we don't need to believe this watered-down version of Jesus is being given to us by our culture. That's not who Jesus is. That's not who God is. Jesus is angry. The Bible says that God is angry with the wicked every day. That there is wrath, that there is a zeal for, for our attention, for our worship, for our devotion. And he will not share it with anyone else. Let me ask you, you husbands here today, how many of you would share your wife with another man? Nobody? Okay. You think God's any different? And, and if a man did share his wife with somebody else, I wouldn't even call that a man. God is jealous over us. He wants our attention. He wants our worship. He wants our devotion. And the more that we read of the life of Christ, the less we will reject this watered-down Jesus that just everything's permissible, that everything's okay, that just do whatever your heart desires, follow your heart, Live in your truth. These are all these lies that we hear out of our, pop, our popular culture. But that's what they are, they're lies. And that's not who Jesus is. He is jealous over us. He does not want idols in our life. Anything that would come between us and God. And then we see after this moment of Jesus cleansing the temple, he is confronted by the religious leaders. In verse number 18, Then answered the Jews and said unto him, What signs showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? Who are you to do this, Jesus? Who are you to come in and, 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 and up, upset all these? We've been doing this for years, Jesus. Who are you? What authority do you have? And what was his response? What was the, what was the authority that he gave unto them? In verse number 19, And Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will rise it up. Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in building. They're talking about the temple of Herod. When Herod is improving, he's making these big expansions to the, to, the, uh, to the temple at that time. And they're talking about what Herod had done for 46 years. And wilt thou bear, rear it up in three days? But he spake of the temple of his body. Now this is important to know. That whenever Jesus went to the temple that day, there was nothing inside the Holy of Holies. The Ark of the Covenant was not in there. It had been lost Whenever they went into captivity, we don't even know what happened, whether the, the Jews hid it or it was taken by their captors. We don't really know what happened to it. But whenever, whenever Jesus goes to that temple, the presence of God on the, the mercy was not there. What Jesus was telling, this is my authority. I am the presence of God right now. That's what Jesus was saying. You want to know what authority I have? Here's my authority. You're worshiping an empty temple, and I'm the presence of God in the flesh right here, right now. And he prophesied and said that 
You're going you're gonna to crucify me. You're going to bury me. But in three days, I will rise again. And so he said, you want to know what authority I have? See my resurrection. That's my authority. That God will raise me up. The Holy Spirit will raise me up. I will raise myself up in three days after you put me in the ground. That's my authority. If you want to know what authority I have, this is my authority. You're worshiping an empty building with no presence of God. It's all just man-made religion. It's all just going through the motions. It's all just making money and making merchandise of God's house. And God is here in the flesh right now. That's my authority. That's what Jesus was saying to them. The temple was empty, but Jesus was a living presence of God in that day. And the Bible goes on to say here, uh, in, uh, in, verse, in verse number 23, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover in the feast day, many believed in his name when, he, when they saw the miracles which he did. Now we don't know all the, all the miracles that he did that day, but, but he must have performed many miracles. We don't, they don't record it here in scripture. But what does the Bible say? Um, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did that day, but Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men. So I thought Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. I thought he came to, 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 to save people, and yet people are believing in him, but Jesus rejected them. What's going on? Why, why would he do that? Because the Bible says that he knew all men. That Jesus rejected the people who came to him because their faith was superficial. They, they liked the works of Jesus, but they don't like the words of Jesus. They liked the works that he did. They like the miracles. They like the free lunch. They like all the amazing things he could do. But whenever Jesus said, okay, now follow me. Obey what God has commanded. They did not like that. And there are, there, the, the world is filled with people that call themselves Christians, that may even come to church, and they love the works. They love all the good things. They love all the, all the happy stuff. But they don't love the words of Jesus. They don't follow his commandments. And what Jesus is saying is, if you're not committed to me, I'm not committed to you. If you're not committed to me, I'm not committed. Jesus doesn't want a halfway faith. He doesn't want a partial devotion. He doesn't want any idols. He doesn't want anything else on the throne of your heart except for him. And so Jesus rejected these people because he knew all men. And this is the first time. The Bible tells about many stories. You remember the story about the, the ten lepers? Remember that story? The ten lepers come and they're like, Jesus, heal us, heal us. And the Bible says, Jesus miraculously healed the ten lepers. And they went away rejoicing. But then there was one that came back to say thank you. Listen, I'm, God can do a miraculous work in your life. That doesn't mean you're saved. God can spare your life. And this has happened time after time after time. God has spared the life of sinners only for them to say, oh, thank you, Jesus, for saving me. But they never turn their heart towards him. How many people have you heard on, you know, you know they're, they're like, God, if you'll save me from this situation, if you'll save me from this circumstance, God, I promise I'll live for you. And, and God delivers them, and yet they never live for God. This happens time and time and time again in Christianity and churches where people love the works of Jesus. They love the deliverance. They love, you know, God's, you know, God pulling them out of the fire or, 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 or um, getting them escaping from some terrible situation, but yet they won't follow him or love him with their heart. What about that parable that Jesus gives in Luke chapter 8 about the, the soil and the seed? And the Bible talks about one particular soil, the soil that in verse number 6 it says, and some when they were casting the seed, and some fell upon a rock. And as soon as it had sprung up, 
It withered away because it lacked moisture. That's what Jesus said in Luke chapter 8. And then Jesus explains, what does that mean? Jesus says, on the rocks, the, the, soil, the, the seed that was sown upon the rocks are they which when they hear, receive the word with joy. Well, I've seen people, you, you might have seen this as well, going to church for any period of time. I've seen people that will come to church as a visitor and they'll come down, they'll give the invitation, and they'll come down, and they'll be crying, and they'll be weeping, and then they'll be rejoicing, and they'll be happy that God saved them, and they leave church Sunday morning, and you never see them again. Right. I've seen it happen. People come down weeping, and, and their family will come around them rejoicing and hugging and saying, thank God the prodigals come home, and the, and the person leaves that day, and they never come back to church. Now, are you saying... You know, are you judging whether they're saved? I don't know if that person's saved or not. I can't, I can't look at the condition of their heart. The only person I know that's saved or not is me. That's it. I can't judge anybody else's salvation. But friend, listen, if your salvation can't get you to church, I doubt it's going to get you to heaven. If your salvation doesn't make any kind of impact in your life or you want to live for God, I doubt you're going to enjoy eternity with him. There are people who want his works, but they cannot endure his word. Jesus says he knew what was in their hearts there. He says that he knew all men. These people weren't truly converted. They weren't true disciples. They enjoyed the show. They enjoyed the miracles. They enjoyed the deliverance. But they did not want to follow him. And then, and then in verse number 25, it says... And needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. Now, this is, for me, when I read that, I don't know about you, this is discouraging, but it's also encouraging. The fact that God knows, look, you're not hiding anything from him. He knows every bit. Not one iota. Look, look there are... There are things we don't share with other people that are maybe outside of our family, right? There's some, just, this is just our family business. We're not sharing it with other people, right? And that's, that's, that's totally normal. And there are things maybe that you and your spouse wouldn't share with your kids. And if we're being honest today, there are some things that we don't even share with our spouse. And, and husbands, that's a good thing. There's some things you don't need to tell your wife that go through your head, okay? There are some thoughts that we have that we don't even tell our closest friend, that we wouldn't even tell our spouse, Thoughts that go through our mind. And, then, and maybe we have the thought and think, oh, why did I even think that? That's a terrible thing to think. But you still thought it. Yeah. None of that's hid from God. I'm not sure why you're here at church this morning. I don't know what your motivation is, but God knows your motivation. Amen. Nothing is hidden from him. And that's a little discouraging, to be honest with you. <laughs> But on the other hand, God knows the very worst about you, and he still loves you. Look, there are some things you don't tell because you think, if I say this, people won't like me. I, I'll tell you, as a Sunday school teacher, there have been many times I've had something on the, lip, uh, on the edge of my tongue ready to say it, and I'm like, I better not say that. And I've said some pretty dumb stuff in here, so you can only imagine what I haven't said. And why? Because we're afraid if I really say how I really feel, those people won't like me anymore. Can I tell you, God knows you completely and he still wants you. 
he knows us all. He knows every bit of you, and he still desires to have you. Well, I don't know any, I don't know any person that they really knew me would want me, but God does. Well, that's an encouraging thought for this, me this morning, that God knows you, <laughs> and despite that, he still loves you. And so I think it's important for us this morning to give attention to this moment that many times we kind of put in our back of our mind of Jesus cleansing the temple and the purpose and the reason why he did it. Because God cleanses everything he converts. It doesn't happen overnight as a Christian. It's a process. We grow in grace, Paul says. But if we follow Jesus over time, he will cleanse us in our life. And then we see on the same day that, uh, that this man by the name of Nicodemus approaches Jesus. He was a Pharisee, the Bible says here in verse number one. He was a ruler. This word ruler could also mean teacher of the Jews. So this is someone that had authority over them. And he came to Jesus by night. Now, there's some, there's some dis, dis, division on did he come to Jesus at night because he was ashamed? Or did he come to Jesus at night because he just, in that day, well, just think about it. We're following this story. It sounds like Jesus had a pretty hectic morning, right? Uh, because he was driving, he was cleansing the temple, and he was performing miracles all afternoon. And maybe it just wasn't, it wasn't the right time to try to have a sit-down conversation with Jesus during the day. That may have been why he met at night. I don't know. But he did come to him at night, the Bible says. And he, and he confesses something. He says, uh, we know uh, that thou art a teacher, in verse number two, that comes from God. For no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. So even Nicodemus... Uh, understands that Jesus has some type of relationship with God, but he's not sure what it is, and he's coming to him to get some clarity. There's also some belief that he's coming as a representative of the religious leaders because he says to them, uh, we know that thou art a teacher come from God there in verse number two. So he's, he's talking about more, more than just, he didn't say I know, he says we know. So maybe he's even coming as a representative from the rulers in Jerusalem at that day, the religious rulers at that day. We don't know that for sure. But he comes to him, and Jesus says, his response to him is, Verily, verily, in verse number three, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then Nicodemus is confused by this. How can you be born again? How is that even possible? It's not physically possible to do that. And I don't know about you, but maybe you've had some conversation with people when it comes to salvation where you ask them maybe something like this. Have you ever been born again? Have you ever been saved? And they'll say something like, oh yeah, I go to church. Oh, yeah, I get, I've been baptized. You see, Jesus was talking about something spiritual, and Nicodemus was focused on something carnal or materialistic or worldly or earthly. And many times that's our relationship. When we talk about when we're trying to lead someone to Jesus or tell someone more about salvation, they don't quite understand. We're not talking about physical things. We're not talking about attendance or membership of a church. I'm not talking about if you got wet in a baptistry. I'm not talking about if you did some religious activity. I'm asking, have you been born again? That's something completely different. And Jesus responds to Nicodemus' confusion with four examples. We don't have time today to go through all these. The first one he gives is an example of being born again. He says, Jesus says, Verily, verily, I say to thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And Jesus is talking about this supernatural, being born again or being born from above type of salvation. And, and he uses this because, you know, uh, being born is a universal experience. 
If you're here today, you've been born. At some point in the past, I'm not sure, it might have been 100 years ago, but you have been born. We've all had that experience. We don't remember it, but there's evidence it happened, okay? We're all here for that reason. And Jesus is saying, just as much as it was universally true that we've all been born physically, it's universally true that we all must be born again spiritually. And Jesus begins to explain that this born of the water is this earthly birth. You know, whenever, a, a, they, the commonly the phrase is, whenever a, wa- a woman's water breaks and she goes into labor. It's talking about a physical, natural birth. But can I tell you that uh, some people use this example or use this scripture to say, oh, here it shows you have to be baptized to be saved. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about a physical birth, being born physically by your mom. And, and, and water baptism cannot save you. There's no redeeming power in being baptized. But he says you should be born of the Spirit. And no matter what life you... And see, here again, Nicodemus is thinking, well, why do I need to be born again? I'm a Jew. I'm a Pharisee. I'm a ruler of the people. I'm as good as it gets. I have to be born again? And Jesus, and Jesus responds universally, ye must be born again. It doesn't matter how good you are, how morally upright you are. It doesn't matter how good of a life you've lived. Ye must be born again. Nicodemus was a well-respected Jew, but he needed to be born again. Jesus doesn't use the, only use the example of being born. He uses the example of wind. He talks about the wind comes and goes, and no man can understand it. And that's true. Listen, you can't figure out the Holy Spirit. You can't put the Holy Spirit on your calendar. I'm going to meet with you next week, Holy Spirit. Or I'm going to orchestrate some kind of service at church. I'm going to make the Holy Spirit show up. You can't control the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes and he goes. And then he uses an example in verses 14 through 18 about the, uh, the serpent on the pole in the Old Testament. If you remember that story in the book of Numbers, I believe it's chapter number, number, number 21, I think, where there's a story, and, and we'll, we'll do this and wrap up here. I know we're running out of time, but uh, there's a story in the, in, in the Old Testament where the, the nation of Israel had become disobedient and rebellious towards God. And so God sends fiery serpents, a picture of sin. He sends fiery serpents into the camp of the Israelites, and they begin to bite people, and everyone that's bitten dies. And the people begin to panic, and they begin to try and, try and fix the problem themselves, but there is no solution. And finally they go to God, and God says, I'll give you the solution. Take, a, take a, a pole and put on the top of that pole a brazen serpent, a serpent made of bronze. And if you will just look to that, to that serpent that's, that's cast in bronze, you can be saved. You'll be healed. And that's exactly what happened. If you read the story, Moses makes that serpent on a pole and lifts it up, and people begin to look at the, at the pole, at the serpent, the brazen serpent, and they are delivered from the poison of those fiery serpents. Why would Jesus use that as an example to talk about salvation? Because as I said, the serpents are a picture of sin. And can I tell you, we've all been bitten by sin. Every one of us. We're all, we're all under the condemnation of God. But what, what, what Moses did was, God said, take a brazen serpent, take a bronze serpent. Why is that important? Because bronze in those days was, it was, uh, was commonly attributed with a sign of judgment. Because when you made gold or silver, you would refine it. You would take out all the impurities, right? But bronze, you don't make bronze by, because bronze isn't a natural element. You have to combine different metals to make bronze. You have to fer- forge them in a furnace, and it's very hot, and it goes through, uh, you know, crucibles, and it goes through all this intense pounding and beating to make it to the shape that you want it to be and so whenever they made this brazen serpent it wasn't just a picture of sin it was a picture of judged sin the sin had been judged and so whenever jesus said that you have just like moses lifted up the serpent he's talking about whenever he was upon the cross that he was our judgment for sin he took our judgment 
He wasn't just a picture of sin, he was a picture of judged sin. And so he uses this example of this bronze serpent, this sin that had been judged. And what was the answer to Nicodemus? If you'll just simply look, you can be saved. Just simply, like the song goes, look and live. Look, this is, this is, the, this is the, uh, the, uh, the core of salvation. Salvation is not about how much faith you have. Salvation is about the object of your faith. If you put your faith in Jesus, even if it's as small as a mustard seed, you can receive salvation. Just look and live. Just look to him. The, the more I read of the New Testament, the more I see the zeal of God. The more I read of the Old Testament, that story in Numbers revealed here in the New Testament, the more I see the love of God. You read the Old Testament and see all those laws for the widows, for the orphans, for the strangers. That's God's love. There are people that think, oh, the Old Testament's God's just angry and wrathful and judgment. No, no, no. Read your Bible. See how much God cares for the people, for the, unfor- for the forgotten people of society. No, he loves us. And he says, if you'll just look to my son, my only begotten son, you can live. And then finally in verses 19 through 21, and we'll wrap up. He says, and this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. Listen, you're going to meet a lot of people that will give you a lot of excuses why they can't come to Jesus. Oh, you believe in those old fairy tales from thousands of years ago? Oh, that's not even true. Or I'm a pretty good person. They'll give you all kinds of excuses. But this is what Jesus, this is the root, this is the root of the issue. They won't come to him because their deeds are evil. They don't want to give up their sin, and that's why they won't come. Now, what happened in Nicodemus? We don't see a conversion here at this story. It just ends here in verse number 21. But he that doth trust cometh to the light, that his deeds may be manifest, that they are wrought in God. So what happened to Nicodemus? Let's turn our Bibles to John chapter number 19, and we'll see the end of the story. Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night. He hears that he must be born again. And then we see here at the end of uh, Jesus' life, as he's being buried, that Nicodemus is there. In, in John chapter 19 and verse number 38. And after this, Joseph of, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for the fear of the Jews, besought Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him leave. He came therefore and took the body of Jesus. And there came also Nicodemus, which at the first came to Jesus by night, and brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes and a hundred pound weight. And, and, they, and took they the body of Jesus and wound it in linen clothes and the spices and the manner of the Jews is to bury. What you find is at the end, Nicodemus realized who Jesus was. We talk a lot about the gospel, the death, the burial, and resurrection. And we spend a lot of time on his death, don't we? The crucifixion. We spend a lot of time on the resurrection, don't we? He rose again. We don't spend enough time on the death. But Nicodemus did. He turned to Jesus. I wonder this morning, do you love the works of Jesus or do you love the words of Jesus? Is it just superficial faith or are you allowing Jesus to cleanse you? Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you this time. Thank you for this uh, word of scripture. We do pray for the servants to come. You speak to our hearts in Christ. we pray. Amen.